We are in Yavamos in the middle of Tzadi Amar Aleph 90a, and we are discussing the topic of when, if, uh, when can the rabbis, the Chazal, as a rabbinic court, can they issue rulings that go against the Torah? Can they do it? And if they could do it, when does it apply? When does it not apply? What are the parameters? Uh, and we went through a few different cases, which the Gemara said was not really a case. They weren't really cases which go against the Torah or uproot the Torah. Uh, but now we will uh, begin to have cases where uh, we see that they do go against the Torah, and yet it still works. Uh, so let's let's go through it now, and we'll see exactly when it works and when it doesn't work. Tashma. We have the following case. Essentially as follows. The law has to do with the laws of korbanos, of sacrifices. And there are many steps uh, with regards to bringing sacrifices. There are four basic steps to bringing a sacrifice. The main step is what we refer to as rikas hadam, which is the sprinkling of the blood onto the altar. That is the main step. That is what uh, allows for the kapara, for the forgiveness of the korban, for the acceptance of the sacrifice. Um, and that step is very much necessary. Uh, however, it has to be done with pure blood. So what happens if you have impure blood, you have blood which is not pure, and a person sprinkles it onto the altar. So if you do it by accident, so then it's fine, it works. Even though you shouldn't do it, if you do it by accident... After the fact, it works. But if you did it on purpose, intentionally, you, so you knew the blood was impure, and you still did it, so then it doesn't work. So the Gemara asks, that why doesn't it work if you did it intentionally? In the end of the day, on a biblical level, it should definitely work. It should definitely work on a biblical level, even if you use impure blood, even if you do it intentionally, it should work. So how could the rabbis come along and essentially go against the Torah and say that it doesn't work? How do we know that it works on a biblical level? It does work on a biblical level. It, it works even though the blood is impure. Once you sprinkle the blood onto the altar, it uh, accomplishes its mission and it, it works for forgiveness. How do we know this? It says in Abraisa, the tzitz, which is the crown which the uh, Kohen, uh, the high priest wears. So that acts as a way of a forgiveness for different different aspects of the uh, of the temple, and it, it works to to solve the problems of al hadam, al abasar, al achilav, shenitma, bein bishogi, bein meizah, bein bonus, bein beratzam, bein biachah, bein betzipor. That the tzitz allows for the blood after the fact. If if the blood is impure, or if the meat is impure, or some fats are impure, whether it was done by accident or on purpose, whether it was done willfully or again under duress, or whether it was done as an individual, or by, or for a communal offering, it, it doesn't make a difference. Uh, in the end, of the tzitz, in all of these cases, the tzitz, which is the crown that the Kohen Gadol wears, the high priest wears, it allows for all of these things to take place after the fact, if you did it, even if you did it intentionally. So we see that it works. It does work if you did it intentionally. So how could you say, V'amir Rabban and so what's going to happen? The rabbis are going to say, no, 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 this sacrifice didn't work. On a biblical level, the sacrifice works. But on a rabbinic level, they're going to say, no, the sacrifice didn't work. If the sacrifice doesn't work, so then you have to bring another one. So bringing an extra sacrifice, 
uh, for specific uh, sacrifices, uh, to bring uh, to bring a new one is not allowed. So, for example, for a sin offering, you can't bring a sin offering if it's if it's not necessary. If the first one worked, you're not allowed to bring a second one. On a biblical level, the first one worked, so you have no right to bring a second one. The rabbis are going to say, "No, the first one didn't work." So you're now you're bringing a second one. To bring a second one on a biblical level is not needed, and not only is it not needed, but to bring a sacrifice which you're not supposed to bring is a violation. It's a prohibition. So how could the rabbi say, no, the first one didn't work, bring a second one? On a biblical level, you're not allowed to bring the second one. It's an option. You're not allowed to bring the second one. So how could the rabbi say this? So the Gemara answers, Amr Rabbi Yossi Bar Chanina, they first want to suggest as follows. Rabbi Yossi Bar Chanina wants to suggest as follows, My Lord, to the Kamar, he first wants to answer that when we meant that on a, that if you sprinkle the impure blood intentionally that it doesn't work, it doesn't mean it doesn't work. It does work. You do not bring another sacrifice. That's not what we meant. You don't bring another sacrifice. What we meant was that uh, it won't allow you, part of sprinkling the blood also, A, it, 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 it acts as forgiveness and it makes the sacrifice work, but also it, it allows... Uh, the people to then eat from the meat of the sacrifice, that you're allowed to eat from part of the meat of the sacrifice. So what they meant to say was that you're not allowed to eat from the meat of the sacrifice. That's not allowed. So that will will, will create some sort of penalty and fine to say, no, you can't eat from the meat of the sacrifice. But did the sacrifice work? Sure, sure, of course it worked. It did work. And so the Gemara says, wait a minute, even if it's about the meat, so, so, in the end of the day, there's a mitzvah, to eat the meat of the sacrifice, and the rabbis, on a biblical level, everything worked. And they should be able to eat the meat, and it's a mitzvah to eat the meat. But on a rabbinic level, you're going to tell me that it didn't work because you intentionally sprinkled blood with impure blood. You're going to tell me that it didn't work on a rabbinic level, so, meaning to the, to the point where we're going to say you can't eat the meat of that sacrifice, but that's also uprooting the Torah law. Because the Torah, on a biblical level, we say that you could eat the meat. On a rabbinic level, we're saying that now ahead, now you cannot eat the meat. Uh, but there's a mitzvah to eat the meat. Viksiv, vachluitam, vachluosam, asher kafar behem elamisho kohanim ochlum abaylam mischaprim. That the verse says that they should eat the meat, and when the kohanim eat the meat, so then uh, the 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 people that brought the sacrifice they get their forgiveness. But there's a mitzvah for them to eat the meat. So the rabbis are essentially saying. No, you're not allowed to eat the meat. We're going to put a penalty, a fine to say you can't eat the meat. On a biblical level, they are supposed to eat the meat. It's a mitzvah for them to eat the meat. So what's going on here? So Amar Lay, so the answer is, what's the final answer? The answer is that you're, in the end of the day, it's true. The rabbis have the right to make a ruling which goes against the Torah. They are going against the Torah here. When are they allowed to do this? This is a very important line. Shave Valtasa shiny. When they are passive, there's a difference when you are passive versus active. If you are, vi- if the rabbis made a ruling in which they said that you could violate the Torah passively, and how are they doing this passively in this case? Because they are not eating meat. The Torah tells them, eat the meat of the on a biblical level, even though you sprinkle the blood with impure blood, but on a Torah level they'll say that there's a mitzvah to eat the meat of the sacrifice. But the rabbis have the right to come along and say that it, because they're going to create a penalty and a fine uh, they're going to create a penalty to say that if you poured, if you sprinkled blood with impure blood, so then we're going to say, do not eat the meat. So that even though it goes against the Torah, they are allowed to create a ruling which goes against the Torah as long as you are being passive. As long as you are being passive, so then that is allowed. And here they're being passive because they are just sitting around doing it. They're not eating the meat. That's what they're doing. They're not eating meat. They're not actively violating the Torah. They're passively 
not fulfilling the words of the Torah. And in that instance, so then they are allowed to, the rabbis are allowed to institute and, 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 do, and create a ruling which goes against the Torah. So this is a fascinating idea. There's a lot to discuss here. We don't have time to discuss it, but there's a lot to discuss about what exactly is active and passive. What do we mean by active and passive? Uh, there are a lot of iffy cases. It's hard to know whether you're being active or whether you're being passive. One example is that uh, we know from a Chagiga, going back to Chagiga, that there is a mitzvah during the uh, during the holidays, during the Shalash Regalim, during Pesach, Sukkot, Shavuos, to come to the temple. You have to go three times a year to the temple and not empty-handed. You can't come empty-handed. You have to bring with you a sacrifice. So what happens if you come to the temple, but you come empty-handed? Is that called being passive or being active? Well, on the one hand, you're active because you are walking to the temple. It requires walking to the temple. On the other hand, you are passive because you are not bringing a sacrifice. And there's a violation there. You're supposed to bring a sacrifice. You are not bringing a sacrifice, but you're being active in the sense that you're walking into the base of Migdash, into the temple. Uh, so that is, so there, there are many different scenarios where we're not really sure. A lot of the commentators uh, try to figure out how to define what does passive mean, what does active mean. Um, but uh, that is the rule. The point is, the rule is that the rabbis have the right to create a ruling which goes against the Torah as long as you're only violating the Torah by being passive. So now the Gemara says, turning the page to 90b, this, all of this was really a question on Rav Chista, because Rav Chista came up with a case where the rabbis had a ruling which went against the Torah. So Rav Chista said, I was actually going to ask, on, I was going to bring up various proofs from the following cases where we seemingly go against the Torah, but now that we know about this answer that they have the right to create a ruling which goes against the Torah as long as it's passively going against the Torah, you are not actively doing something to go against the Torah. So this will solve, that answer will solve the following uh, situations, following rulings. We have a bunch of rulings where I, it seems like the rabbis have complete right to violate, uh, to violate the Torah. The answer is that no, it's only by being passive. What are those cases? We have uh, seven cases. Case number one is Arel. Essentially, this is a case where a convert converts uh, Erev Pesach, the day before Pesach, and uh, the rabbi said that when they convert the day, the, on Erev Pesach, on the day before Pesach, that they do not bring a, a Pesach offering. They don't bring a Pesach offering, even though technically on a biblical level they should bring a Pesach offering. We say, no, don't bring a Pesach offering. Why not? It was out of concern because we rule that once they go through a bris milah, once they go through a circumcision, so then they become impure through that process. And we're concerned that they're going to say, oh, if I could bring a Pesach offering now this year, so then maybe next year I could also bring a Pesach offering if I have some other impurity. If, uh, let's say, I touched a dead person. Uh, and that's not true. If you touch, if you're impure and you touch a dead person, so then you cannot bring a Pesach offering, and a person might get confused. So because of that confusion, the rabbi said, "You know what? Don't bring a Pesach offering this year either. On the year that you convert, don't bring a Pesach offering, even though on a biblical level you could. How is this allowed? Because you're passively not fulfilling the Torah, uh, and that's allowed if the rabbis, if the rabbinic court created such a such a ruling. Case number two is Hazah. What's the case of Hazah? Hazah is that if a person is impure from uh, touching a, a dead person. So there's a whole purification process. It's not just about going to the mikvah, but they also have to be sprinkled with uh, the blood of the para aduma, of the red heifer, and it's a whole process. So without getting into all the details, essentially they have to be sprinkled on day three and day seven with the with this uh, mixture. 
Um, what happens if day seven falls out on Shabbos? And it also happens to be Arab Pesach. It's the day before Pesach also. So on Shabbos, they said that there's a rabbinic rule that you're not allowed to do the sprinkling of the blood. On a rabbinic level. On a biblical level, you could. But on a rabbinic level, you can't. So what's going to end up happening? Uh, what's going to end up happening is that uh, on a rabbinic level, we're going to say, don't do the sprinkling, and you're not going to end up being able to bring the Pesach offering as a result of that. The rabbis ruled, stay impure, and you can't bring the Pesach offering. Even though on a biblical level, really the ruling should be that uh, we should create a situation where you could bring the Pesach offering. Um, and so here, too, because you're being passive, you are not bringing the Pesach offering. Case number three, Izomel. Izomel has to do with a bris mila. A bris mila is circumcision. So if you have a baby, it's the eighth day, and they have to have a bris mila. They have to have a circumcision, but it falls out on Shabbos. So we do a, we do a bris. We do a circumcision on Shabbos. However, it's a case where the knife that you need for the circumcision is in a different place. You're not, and there's no Eruv, so you cannot carry. It's the, when we're discussing a case here where on a rabbinic level you can't carry. We're not dealing, discussing a case where on a biblical level it's a Rishis Rabbim, it's a real public domain, but it's not a pub, it's not a halachic public domain. It's only forbidden on a rabbinic level. So the rabbi said, you know what? Do not fulfill the mitzvah of a bris in its fullest form of having a circumcision in the fullest form on the eighth day. We're going to delay it because we're going to tell you you cannot bring the knife to the baby because there's no Erev, and you're going to have to cross over places where on a rabbinic level, we said you cannot cross, so on a, you cannot carry. Um, so we, we see that on a rabbinic level, they're going to say, don't fulfill the biblical mitzvah, even though on a biblical level, you should do it in its completed, in its best way, on its, which is on the eighth day. And they're going to say, no, delay it on a rabbinic level. And they're allowed to do that because you're passively delaying it. Case number four, sudden betzitzis. Okay, on a biblical level... If a person has tchelas, tchelas is the blue dye on tzitzis, so then uh, you're allowed to wear tzitzis even though it's in violation of shatnes. It's something that we had way earlier in the beginning of the tractate. Shatnes is a prohibition of uh, wool and linen together. So because you're using tchelas, so then uh, the Torah tells us that you're allowed to, you're allowed to wear shatnes uh, in that scenario. However, it's only when you're obligated to wear tzitzis, which is during the day. So the rabbi said, well, at night, you're not allowed to wear tzitzis, and we're afraid that you're going to continue wearing the garment into the night. At night, since there's no mitzvah tzitzis, you also, then you violate the prohibition of wearing shatnes, of wearing wool and linen uh, together. And because of that concern, the rabbi said, you know what? So don't put on, don't put on the tzitzis. You can have the four-corner garment, but don't put on the tzitzis during the day. Out of that concern, uh, because we're afraid that you're going to end up uh, violating, uh, violating shatnes. Uh, so in that case, it is also um, where the rabbi said that you could do this. In that case, it's also by being passive. How is it being passive? You're being passive because the mitzvah of tzitzis is to wear the tzitzis. It's to wear the four-corner garment. It's not, not about putting it on, but it's about wearing the four-corner garment. Once it's already worn, so then you're being passive. You're not, uh, it's on you already. Uh, and so therefore, you're being passive by not having tzitzis on it. So they said that you don't have to have tzitzis on it out of concern that uh, you'll wear it at night. So don't, don't, don't violate shotness and don't have the tzitzis. Next case, case number five, the atzeres. Kivsei atzeres is as follows. We allow, people, we allow people to bring sacrifices on Shabbos as long as it's, uh, it's a whole big discussion, but uh, as long as it's, uh, let's say it's uh, for the yantiv, let's say it's timely 
and you need it for that day because it's really for the holiday. The holiday falls out on Shabbos. So we say you're allowed to bring sacrifices for the holiday on Shabbos. However, what happens if a person uh, has the, they, they, when they slaughter the animal, they don't have the right intentions. They don't have the right intentions for the right sacrifices. Um, so if you didn't have the right intention, so on a biblical level, we say, okay, fine, you could still, you could still do the zrika, you could still do the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice, which we discussed on the previous uh, earlier in this in this recording, but you're still allowed to do the sprinkling of the blood on a rabbinic level. We say that no, you can't you can't do it if it falls out on Shabbos because it's a violation of Shabbos, so you can't do it. So the rabbis are saying, don't do something which on a biblical level you should be able to do and you should do to do the sprinkling of the blood. The rabbi said, don't do it. There, how could they say don't do it? Same answer. They are being passive. And the next two cases, the last two cases, is shofar and lulav, which is the way we follow today. If Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, we don't blow shofar. Why don't we blow shofar when it falls out on Shabbos? So the reason is it's out of concern that you're going to end up carrying the shofar in a public domain, which is on a rabbinic level. Or we don't pick up lulav either. Even today, we don't pick up lulav if it falls out on Shabbos. We don't pick up the esrog and lulav on Shabbos. Why not? Because out of concern that you're going to carry it uh, when there's no Erev and it's uh, rabbinic on a rabbinic level, it's carrying in public. Um, so there are the rabbis. How do the rabbis have the right to do that? They have the right to do that because uh, they're being telling you to be passive. You're passively violating the Torah, and that's allowed. And so we have all these different cases. These are all cases of being passive, and therefore it is allowed. Okay, very important, uh, very important Gemara. Finally, the last, uh, for this recording, the last proof. Tashma, we have the following verse. It says, Elav Tishma'un. It says in the Torah that you have to listen to the prophets. This is not about a, a court, but it's about the prophets. Afilu Omer Lacha Avar Lachas Mikol Mitzvah Shebatorah Kagon Eliyahu Barakarmal Hakol Shamalo. We learn from here, from this verse, that you have to listen to the prophets, even if they tell you to violate a mitzvah in the Torah. For example, Eliyahu. Eliyahu, the prophet, uh, when he was on Mount Carmel, Ahara Carmel, he told the Jews to bring a sacrifice uh, on Abama. On Abama, not uh, outside of the temple. He told them to bring a sacrifice, which is a violation. So, and But it's a Navi, so you have to listen to him. So how, how could you listen to him? Shani Hasam. So how could you, how could you listen to him? So the says, no, Shani Hasam, Dechsev Elof Tishma. No, there is different because the Torah told us we listen to the Navi. The Navi is different. You have to listen to the Navi. So the Gemara then asks, I understand, but Ligmar Mine. So let us learn from the case of the Navi that the Navi has the right, and this is not just being passive, this is being active. They're actively bringing a sacrifice outside of the temple that is actively going against the Torah. So how does he have the right to do this? We should learn from the Navi that not just by a Navi, but it's also true, as Tosas would explain, that this would also be true by the court, that if the court made a, a certain ruling, so then. We should also, even though it's actively going against the Torah, it should also be allowed. We should learn from Eliyahu uh, that you're allowed to do this. So the Gemara answers, no. There it's different. Migdir Milsa Shiny. When are you allowed to do it? When are you allowed to go against the Torah? It's only, and this is how the, the commentators explain it, only if it's temporary. It's not permanent. It's not a permanent ruling. It's only if it's what we refer to as a Horah Shah. It's temporary. Not only is it temporary, but it's for the purpose of that we're going to violate the Torah so that they end up coming closer to the Torah. Like by Eliyahu, the reason why he did all this was so that the Jews would get closer to Hashem. And so you're allowed to violate the Torah temporarily, 
only based on the ruling of a navi, of a prophet, or of the court, only if it will ultimately get them to, to come to re-accept the Torah. So then that's when it's allowed, only if it's temporary, uh, a one-time, uh, one-time ruling. Uh, so then that would be allowed. So, so just uh, to review, and then we'll conclude, we had two exceptions Two cases where the rabbis are allowed to go against the Torah in a ruling. One is when they're being passively going against the Torah. And the second one is that even if they're actively going against the Torah, but it's really ultimately, A, it's temporary. It's just a one-time ruling. And B, it's ultimately for the purpose of bringing them closer to Hashem and to the mitzvahs.